Hello and welcome to The Week at Work. This is David Gibney, your host this week, and I'm joined by my co-host Claire O'Connor. As always, I have to do the intro. The Week at Work is part of Left Block, uh, an alternative media and political education project, and we'd love your support if possible. And there's a number of ways you can do that. You can um, share the podcast with people that you know, um, you know, comment on on social media, let other people know that it's on, uh, or you can join us on patreon.com forward slash left block and give us a a few quid if you have it every week or every month. Sorry, um, I'm gonna like. I suppose after giving the plug for Left Block and everything we've been doing, I suppose it's probably appropriate to review um, last week's on School Kosh Clay, our second um, political education festival, um, which took place on Inishir, the beautiful island of Inishir, uh, where we had three days of talks and debates and panels and all sorts of events. Plus, we had a couple of pints here and there and a bit of grub and uh, a little bit of crack was had as well. And uh, I believe actually, Claire, might be uh, the wrong place to say it, but I'm hearing rave reviews about your singing qualities. Um, Apparently you did a a little bit of a rendition outside of uh, one of the pubs, one of the nights, and everybody came in talking. Actually, highest praise of all, Bernadette McAlisky came in and said to me that you were fantastic at singing. So you might um, wrap up this podcast at the end with a a few bars, if you don't mind. I definitely will not. And Bernadette (laughs) McAlisky is pretty much the only person that I will sing on command for. <laughs> um, I mean, listen, if that's not enough of an incentive to come down, get them to have, sit around the table for a couple of hours and have a sing song with Bernadette and some absolute legends. I don't know what else is, but like, listen, it was just an incredible weekend. Same as last year. It was, it's, there's just something really special about it. Having so many different people with similar kind of viewpoints, similar intentions of the, in their work, you know, it's really non-sectarian space, it's everybody kind of actively working towards not to sound very world, but you know, working towards like a better world, better communities, a better way of doing things and and having, getting to see I mean, and the great thing is, because I was looking at the um the actual schedule that, uh, earlier on and I can't wait to see some of the sessions that I didn't get to see, so you mm-hmm. know, for people who don't know, basically some the opening session the closing session and one or two you know each day everybody attends together but then it's broken down into kind of three different sections one is an irish language one and then there's two other options um so you don't get to see everything which means that mm. i'm now looking forward to the videos of those coming out and they're being edited at the minute by the creative workers co-op who are part of left block and but it was just incredible opened by claire daly closed by brandette mccallisky and just amazing people throughout and i mean and we can probably touch on them in a minute but there were incredible people who, you know, I don't know, got to see for the first time and I've now gone and looked up their work. But some of the most amazing people down there are people who are a part of Left Block and that we worked with before. I was blown away by Conor McCabe, who I've been on this podcast with for years, but never saw him actually present um, in the way he did. And he was, everybody was raving about him. But there was an amazing um, session as well on like workers' co-ops and, you know, workers' owned uh like community well building and things like that and it was and it was basically Ali Lerman and Clem Bradley, you know, who are with Left Block as well. And really practical solutions. So, you know, there's every, there's something for everybody. There's some really mm. academic research based work that's happening. There's really practical solutions that people are actually doing in their own mm. communities. And it's yeah, it's just amazing. I mean what was your favorite part? Uh, someone asked me this the other day, actually. Um, it's hard. It really is. And I know it sounds like a bit of a cliche to say it, but like it's so hard to pick them up because I liked 
different talks for different reasons. Um, it's almost like saying, you know, what's your favorite sport when you're into six different sports? You know, it, 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 there was like Claire Daly's um, talk was excellent in terms of like she was covering militarization of the drive to war. So she was actually giving us some real examples of what's happening in the EU that you don't actually hear reported in the Irish media. Um, She's talking about the amount of funding that's going through and who the lobbying uh, bodies are who are seeking more money for uh, in their drive to war and who has been provoking war and all that side of it. Um, But what was really nice in that one was, and because you mentioned there that it's an anti-sectarian space. We had people from all sides of the left um, present. We had, you know, um, people from the Trotskyite parties, we had people from the Stalinist parties, we had people from the Maoist parties, but we had like social democrats, we've got trade union organizers, a whole range of people. And I think that's what was beautiful about the whole thing was people were listening to Claire speaking for 40, 45 minutes or so uh, and then Q&A session afterwards. And she was able to actually articulate her own position and address the rumours that she's pro-Putin and all the rest of that. And she really killed that off very swiftly and with a very definitive statement about, you know, Putin being an oligarch, right-wing, lunatic type of thing and saying it's, she, he's the antithesis of of everything that she stands for. So um, that stuff was really good at the start. Bernadette, um, at the end, of course, you know, she was talking about nationalism and the far right. Um, but she was talking about, you know, our own collective consciousnesses on, on this island and the racism that's already here, as if like we're all talking about far right um, emerging and the right racism has just emerged. But she said, you know, how we've treated travellers for a hundred odd years is, is evidence that this was just underground, not underground in terms of travellers, but people are getting confidence to come out and attack other minorities now that there are other minorities here. It's not a new thing. Um, so uh, yeah, again, like you, I'm looking forward to the podcasts and the videos and all the rest of it that's going to come out of this. Um, we obviously ad- 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 address different seminars ourselves um, in terms of the chairing. And one of the events I chaired, which was, and this came from a conversation, I'm, I'm part of the Trade Unionist for a New and United Ireland um, group. And we have talks from time to time within the trade union circles about, you know, what workers' rights should be like. So we, we had the uh, workers' rights should be like on a united Ireland. So we had a little bit of a discussion about, from a political perspective, what would could potentially a left-wing united Ireland look like? Because the right wing are really getting themselves organised around this stuff. And it is time for us to have that debate. Um I attended Conor McCabe's one. He was uh, talking about Pat O'Donnell, but he actually went through a whole heap of things in relation to capitalism, the emergence of capitalism, and a little critique about Irish Marxism and Irish leftism, uh, ignoring the agrarian um, struggle, uh, capitalist struggle or class struggle that's happening with or has happened and is continuing to happen. And, and, you know, he led with the line, you know, if you're a Marxist and you're trying to understand capital in Ireland, you cannot look to the framework of Britain or Germany or France or anywhere else. You have to look at Ireland and Ireland's capital and capitalism to understand that you look at cattle. And it was a really, really eye-opening um, session. And again, Bernadette McAllister, was, I, was, I was standing at the exit when everybody was walking out and listening to all the comments and Bernadette McAllister just turned to me and says, that was fucking brilliant. <laughs> like, oh, Connor's going to be delighted with that. Um, we had a talk by Helen Yaffe about Cuba and some of the blockade that's gone on in Cuba for 60 odd years. Um in relation to all sorts of things. But, you know, people not understanding the blockade has been a big problem and something I've written about 10 years ago as well, where, you know, if if a component has, if a technological sort of product has 10% of its um, 
10% of its components made or you know patented in the United States then they can't use it in Cuba or the company will face sanctions so you know, Helen didn't touch on this part of it but you know the bit I wrote about was 10 years ago that was the case as well and it meant that hospitals could not get devices to save children's lives children were dying in hospitals purely because the patents 90% of all patents in the world are registered in the United States. And because of that, Cuba has to create its own sort of um, alternative products to save people's lives, including the COVID vaccine and all the rest of it that we've, we, you know, they were way ahead of the game when COVID came. But she gave a brilliant talk about Cuba. Claire, you want in on one of these pieces or do you want to talk a little bit about some of the sessions no, you went to? On, Helen Yaffe's ses- uh, session was absolutely incredible. But just for to, to let people know, one thing they did or she did really kind of share with everybody was the One Cent for Cuba campaign. So basically, you know, you we are supposed to be able to send money to Cuba from Europe. You know, the the US uh, blockade, it's, uh, you know, it's supposed to only be relevant towards the Americans or um, devices that have, like you said, you know, 10% of American made parts in it. But what's happening is when people are, if, if the word Cuba is anywhere in a transfer or a transaction, it's being blocked. So there's a campaign. If you look it up, it's one cent for Cuba. Um, basically, it, the, the intention of it is, is that if you send a cent to Cuba or you're to Cuba and you put Cuba in the description and it gets blocked to challenge your bank, because it's only through challenging it that actually, you know, there'll be any change, basically. So, and also, uh, Cuba just announced during the week uh, a new diabetes vaccine and, um, I think it was it was COVID, and the, Helen was talking about how the COVID vaccine, Cuba's COVID vaccine, doesn't need, doesn't need to be refrigerated, doesn't have the same restrictions that the likes of the Pfizer vaccine has, and is actually much cheaper, should be available across the developing worlds, and what like it's it's just when you listen to the fact, and I know you know so much more about this than most people because you spent so much time there as well, but it really is such an eye opener in terms of how the world will back America at all costs. I mean, she talked mm. about even like every year. The, the vote to end sanctions come or the vote to end the blockade comes up at the UN and it's like two or three countries will vote against it and yet still they have the power to allow that to keep going like it's outrageous it's the same countries as well every time you always have the United States and Israel and then you might have one or two other countries that are under a little bit of pressure from the United States um, to support their position at the UN so you usually have two to three countries out of 198 odd countries 200 countries and yet the blockade continues and every country is sanctioned or every company that's based elsewhere is sanctioned if they do deals with Cuba there, there was also a piece of legislation again this isn't what Helen was talking about she was talking about climate change but you know if a ship lands in Cuba and goes on then to stay to say to Miami um it's it's banned from arriving in the United States for six months after it has uh, you know entered Cuba's water so it's it's a really restrictive regime uh, or blockade of Cuba and I always come back to this because um I think I can't remember if it was Hillary Clinton but there was a very senior American politician who was, you know, threatening to turn Cuba into a car park. Like, that, they're the words they used. And I remember one of the very senior diplomats from Cuba addressing the comments and saying, if America thinks that our regime is so bad uh, and that it would collapse if they opened up the blockade, why don't they test us and just open up the blockade and let's see what happens? Because America is very scared of Cuba because Cuba is an example of an economy, a socialist left-wing economy that can work. Uh, and that's what the blockade is about. It's yeah. not about human rights. Uh, I've traveled a lot. I've, I've been to 
probably 30 odd countries in the world. Cuba, <laughs> in terms of human rights abuses, is probably among the least, if if not the actual least amount of human rights abuses that I've seen. But Cuba is the only one of those countries that has sanctions on it. So it's, um, yeah, it's a very frustrating debate. But other than that, and I don't participatory, know. You know, local participatory democracy, I think, because Helen did speak brilliantly about that, about why it's not just about bringing policies in. She talked about their environmentally their environmental policies but it's how it, it comes from a participative local democratic process like every she explained it in detail you know every street has its committee and it, like how that feeds up into national organizing and national policy making and um i think that's why america is so afraid of it because it's not just bringing socialist policies in like it's such a most countries would have to go through such a culture change um yeah. whereas cuba is already there yeah. yeah, and, and well, that's that's very visible, by the way, when you're traveling around Cuba. You can see the signs of the Committee for the Defense of the, the, the Revolution as well on every street. You know, in in rural Cuba, you can see that they have signs up saying this this area is covered by this. Yeah, sorry, you wanted in? No, just and as well. On, so when you were talking about Bernard McCallisky and the panel that you did, what was so special about those? Because the point was made throughout both was that there's a re, there was a really strong message about, particularly from Bernard being from the north. You know, that when, when it comes to talk, to talk of a United Ireland or a 22 county socialist, you know, republic or, and like Bernadette was talking about national sovereignty, not nationalism. And we very rarely hear anybody talking about sovereignty and, you know, national sovereignty as opposed to that kind of nationalism, which can turn very right wing. But the very first point you made is, you know, if you think that we're just going to be subsumed by the South <laughs> and it's like it. You know, Mary McAleese is in the papers over the weekend talking about neighbourliness in terms of when this conversation happens and it was talked about on the Late Late Show with Patrick Keelty being the new host and things like that. So, And those conversations are happening all the time, but they're not happening in the how, it's the when. It's the when will this happen? When will the vote happen as if it's just a yes or no and not a what does this actually look like? And I think that was a really brilliant um you know, panel that you did, and also then Bernadette finishing everything off with horror insights, which obviously we we could we could listen to Bernadette for a whole weekend. But, uh, that, oh, by, that, by the way, on the Bernadette stuff, Bernadette's talk is going to be released on a, as a podcast on the week at work. Just to put that on the record here, that <laughs> trademark took her talk last year and put it on their podcast. It's they're not getting it this year. I've had the words yeah. with them, and I've had the words with Bernadette, so everything is <laughs> that talk in particular will be broadcast here. Sorry, and it's, yeah, that's like so. We don't really need to get into it too much because that it's it's just incredible. You could just sit and listen to her all day. But that point above everything else is that you know, first of all, the conversations need to be had about what that would look like before anybody can be asked about on anything, and also you know what should, we need to start talking among ourselves because like she said everybody else has had those conversations different sectors of society know what they want it to look like the left needs to really have a conversation about what that would look like and how we start to work towards it and i think that's something that people need to be talking about and organizing among themselves because Brenda raised the question about our constitution as if the north would come down and just join our constitution and this is an opportunity to actually create you know a new 32 county socialist republic and i think that um yeah, that's a really important piece that came out of the whole weekend. But I think everybody should be really looking forward to listening to all those clips and keep an eye on Trademark, the, le- the Week at Work, Left Block, all the different socials, because we'll all be kind of putting snippets out. Yeah. Um, with that, I suppose we should probably move into some of the news, uh, which is what we normally do on the Week at Work. We look at the uh, the news as it's presented over the weekend. And from that, then we'll, you know, not just look at the stories um when we look at them, obviously from a left-wing perspective, but we'll also look at how the stories are being presented by some of the media outlets. I don't know what's, whether you want to jump in with any story you've been looking at there, Claire, first, and then we can have a chat around it. Yeah, I mean, I think how there was mass, there was a lot of stories around housing, and I think we're kind of 
so we're just at the end of silly season. We're at the end of, you know, there's been no politics in terms of the doll, in terms of legislating, in terms of that kind of stuff for a couple of months now over the summer. We are coming back uh, into doll season. The papers are starting to lean towards that. The conversations around the budget are starting. People, you know, the opposition is putting their stuff forward. Uh, the, the government are starting to leak. And a lot of the leaks that happened this week, I think, came about around housing. So, you know, like one of them was that first time buyer. So there's a first time buyer incentive there, 30 grand worth of tax back. If you buy, and what, what I think is so fascinating about this, and it kind of touched on something else that happened worldwide. You know, your man, of avocado toast fame, Gorner, he came out, you know, he came out talking how capitalists and billionaires and ultra millionaires really think, but he said it out loud. So he's getting a lot of stick now and people are angry because he showed that real explicit cruelty for what it is. But, um, this is kind of like that as well. It's, it may it, it it kind of lifts the veil and makes it really obvious that what the reason that they do these kind of things. So at the moment we have a we have a tax relief basically uh, of about thirty grand for people who buy new homes built by developers, and that's the key. It's built by developers. It's mm-hmm. a tax break for developers. If you buy a second hand home, you don't get that. Which when you think about it, why is now I don't agree with them. I don't agree with the the relief. Anyway, because I think we should be looking at actually reducing right, uh, rents or rates. Sorry, we should be looking at reducing prices across the sector. But um, I'm just providing public homes, uh, you know, by the council and by the government. But the fact that this is how we target them makes it so obvious that it's developer led. You can't you can't get avail of this if you're buying a second hand home. You can't avail of it if you're building your own house. So if you're building a house, that's a, it's a brand new house and you're building it yourself. How is that any different to buying a house off a developer? Which just shows that it's it's basically a tax break for developers and it goes right into their pockets. So they're talking about extending that potentially to first-time buyers buying second-hand homes. And then, you know, another TD suggested that it be made available for self-builds as well. So that's the first element of what's been kind of leaked out. Um, The next one then is around, you know, Actually, George, do you want to jump in on that, Dave? Yeah, no, just there's I I noticed a couple of the stories as well, and I um I've read <laughs> for my sins I read the Indo, the Sunday Indo, and the Indo from Saturday as well, and then I read the Sunday Business Post, and I'm looking at I'm a multitude of different stories, and the one that struck me because I read it last, uh, interestingly, because I read all the other ones about relief tax relief for this, that, and the other, but um there's an article in the Business Post from yesterday saying Dublin. Property prices fall for third consecutive month as house price hike cools nationwide. And I immediately thought to myself, and maybe it's my conspiracy theorist, my inner conspiracy theorist here is like all these tax reliefs and grants and all sorts of plans around housing at a time when house prices are cooling. We know what happens with these tax reliefs. They end up in the pockets of developers or landlords or somebody from that side of things. And I I think there's a really interesting discussion to be had on the political economy of housing in this country uh, about how politicians react to um, situations like this. Like, you know, residential property prices rose by 1.5% in the year to July, despite ECB rate hikes. So property prices are still going up, but in Dublin, they're on their way down. Well, most parts of Dublin, the average in Dublin, they've declined by 4.5%. In Fingal, it's gone up by 1.4%. So what? But obviously, work of um, working from home provisions and all the rest of it had led to house price increases in 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 rural Ireland um, predominantly, which has influenced the whole national narrative around us. But anyway, getting back to it, the point I, I I raise here is, you know, the timing is really interesting. That house price hikes 
um, have cooled and all of a sudden the politicians who are about to implement the budget are talking about more tax release, which is, as we saw in 2000 and well, 2000 to 2008, you know, it, it was fueled by the government pushing more and more of the housing uh, reliefs and all the rest of it that led to, to the, the boom bust cycle that we've seen. There was uh, a couple of others on housing. Yeah, there's a Simon Harris calls for doubling of rent credit. Um, uh, a story in the the Business Post again, and then I. Funnily enough, was... other other papers have been saying that's Daryl O'Brien pushing the doubling of the uh, rent credit as well. And I think the fact that this budget is going to push into a general election really soon, you can really see the politics at play. You can see mm-hmm. them all putting their head above the parapet, and it's attached onto that rent credit that they're talking about is also they're t- they're floating the idea now of a a a, a tax relief for small landlords which is infuriating because a couple of months ago they, they floated this and they got massive pushback because there was research done on um, landlords, basically how many landlords were exiting the market and how many of them are exiting because of tax reasons. And it was very low. Hmm. That's not the reason that they're exiting. But the government are using it to just push another tax subsidy. And it's it, it's it's just infuriating. Like They don't care what the evidence says. But there's an assumption that we're all ticks, that we're all stupid and we don't see through this bullshit. And to be fair, like they have a reason for doing it in that they're not, you know, held fully accountable. There's another article in the in though, um, construction activity hits its lowest level this year. So again, you know, we're in the middle of a housing crisis. We've got 13,000 people homeless and construction activity has hit its lowest level. This is an argument for the state's intervention, direct intervention. So instead of tax reliefs, which cost us, you know, millions, if close to billions every year, why not just close off those schemes and invest in public sector housing? But the reason I say that they think we're all ticks is, um, and I'm going to have... Uh, a problem pronouncing a surname here, but Gabby uh, Gatavec eight in the Indo has an article there uh, about the you know the issue you you raised initially. Plan to help first time buyers to get second hand properties. Right now, I read this first, uh, and it says you know the plan is from Minister Dara O'Brien from Fianna Fáil. Grand, fine. You expect that a minister has issued a press release. Journalists will ring up and get uh, the view of the opposition to find out what their position is in this. No, didn't do that. The next comment comes from Senator Mary Fitzpatrick of Fianna Fáil. So I'm going, okay, two people, one from the Dáil, one from the Senate, from Fianna Fáil, talking about this. The next comment is from Cork Northwest TD, Andreas Moynihan, from Fianna Fáil. So now there's three public representatives from Fianna Fáil who were asked to comment, yes. And then it goes on further to John Lahart, Fianna Fáil. So, yeah, I swear to God. So you have four Fianna Fáilers getting quotes in a full article and not anyone from any of the other parties. It's, it is a press release. It's Sorry, that's, no, that's beyond a press release. That's an ad. Like, that's yeah. an ad. You'd yeah. have to pay for that anywhere else. And what I have a problem with is it doesn't say John Lahart is with Fianna Fáil. It doesn't say Pat Casey. Sorry, there's another one. Pat Casey. <laughs> Incredible. So it doesn't say the latter people are Fianna Fáil. It just says they're TDs or senators. That's all it says. Now that that's, you know, eh, you could, if Gabby maybe has had 10 or 12 articles to cover in the paper that day, then fair enough, you'd say, 
okay, she's been busy. She didn't get a chance to, you know, edit this properly, but she doesn't. She only has one or two. Um, and that's that's where I have a, a big problem with how this is presented because we're in the run-up to budget season and they're talking about housing and all the rest of that. And that's how that is presented. So I went and just checked to see if there was any other articles over the last couple of days by Gabby. Mortgage strugglers in line for support and budget, but only for the short term. Now, this is an article by Hugh O'Connell and Gabby again. Um, so the two of them together. And the quotes are in this one from Taoiseach Leo Varadkar. And then there's quotes from Michael McGrath and Social Protection Minister Heather Humphreys. So again, here's an article with no quotes, no comments from opposition TDs, only from government TDs, including the Taoiseach. Like, seriously, lads, this is this is ridiculous. Like it's as you say, like it's it's more than a press release. This is this is almost journalists lobbying for you to vote for Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael. Keep them I mean, in power. I mean, did you see Hugh O'Connell tweeted an article over the weekend about um, Holly Cairns? Um, and I say I've never seen anybody be ratioed as badly. I mean, I think by the time I'd seen it, I think there was like six or seven hundred comments under it. And I would say 95% of them looked like they were absolutely eviscerating Hugh. So the the article basically said it was it, Holly had said something at this, I don't know what it was, a thinking or some soft down policy event where she had cr- criticised um, ministers who said saying that because of the money they're on, they they can't empathise or understand the level of struggle that people are experiencing. So something along the lines of that, pretty standard by the sounds of it. And this was like a counter. It was as if like they, they were offended on these ministers' behalfs and decided that Holly needed to be taken down a peg or two. And published a story saying that Holly was had applied for planning permission to build a house twice the size of the national of a normal tree bed house um on her on her own land, on her family land. And I when I say he was just absolutely lifted out, but the amount of people and I'm talking like, you know, people from PBP, people from Labour, people from across the spectrum, socialists, communists, normal people that were just like this normal is people ridiculous. normal people you know, <laughs> people who unlike us are not consumed by politics on a daily basis <laughs> but they were everybody just saying farmer's daughter builds house on um own land you know hmm. has more space builds bigger house and people then getting into the fact that like you know, you have more space, it costs you less per square meter to build and all the rest. And I mean, I don't think anybody wants to be coming in and defending someone who's the leader of a, a party, a social democratic party. And But it's like, it just shows a real, like most people were saying, where are the articles about all the people with multiple homes who didn't apply for planning permission at all? Or the people who lied on their planning permission? And some someone else went in and it looked like, well, I, I don't know that this is right, but somebody suggested that of the two people Hugh had ever talked about their homes, one was Mary Lou MacDonald and one was Holly Cairns. Mm. And, I, you know, and it's like when you look at all the stories of the ditch, when you look at what the ditch was able to pull up on people, writing a story like this, I mean, if you want to say, the Holly can't, you know, empathise with people because she comes from farm and background or she, you know, has the means to buy her own house. I don't personally agree because I think, you know, Conor McCabe's talk at the weekend really showed as well that we have a really narrow view of farming in this country compared to the working class that, you know, come from the flat complexes. You know what I mean? He kind of, he made that comparison as well. I just think that in terms of how the media have portrayed this, it, it really... The, the bias towards anybody who criticises Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael in the mainstream media is pretty extraordinary. Mm. 
Well, like I quickly just picked the TD at random to see what size their house was because they're saying you know, I have the article in front of me on on Holly Cairn's um, house and they're saying it's two hundred and forty three square meters, uh, a house in West Cork. An average house in Dublin would probably be about a hundred. 120 square meters right so it is probably double the size of a dublin home uh, and you have to factor in house prices in dublin semi-detached houses all all the stuff that goes with living in dublin um but yeah they, i'd love to know how much this house will cost compared to that three bed in dublin well compared to simon coveney who just bought a house earlier on this year for 900 grand a riverside home just outside his constituency when you see the photograph of it it's i would argue slightly more than the 243 square meters that Holly Cairns is planning on building like uh, and you're talking um not just a home it, it like it's a two story georgian manor was sold for 900,000 euros last uh, october but it is un- understood that the total value of the house and site could be worth as much as 1.4 million i don't remember reading an article in the indo about that no. No, um, maybe it's but, because Coveney is with Fine Gael. Maybe it's because Coveney is a man. Maybe there's just a whole range of ministers. I mean, re- realistically, yeah. this article was written in response to what she said about ministers being out of touch. That's actually what happened. To She's it. not a minister. <laughs> that no, but that but she she made the comment about ministers being out of touch, and it's almost like taking her down a peg or two. It's like oh, it, it's like trying to point out hypocrisy and completely missing the point. Mm, yeah. Yeah. But it, I'd, um, I'd love to see the because I saw a couple of people from Donegal actually tweeting and saying that's the average size of a home in Donegal in the county of Donegal and I'd imagine it is the average size of a home in Cork as well it's nothing sensational compared to average Cork homes outside of city centres like but he's twisting it for a reason you know yeah. and I, I, I get that sense from all of the PR that we just discussed um, from certain journalists and certain uh, they're panicking because we're getting closer and closer to local and European elections next year and potentially a general election and we saw with the whole attacks on the shinners when they did had a good poll in 2019 and into 2020 and that that election so now they've started early to have a pop at, at the opposition because as I say Simon Coveney bought that house this year there's been nothing in the Indo that I'm aware of now, maybe I can be corrected on that, but I haven't seen anyone decide to go after the house and the size of the house and the acreage that's with the uh, this Georgian home that's overlooking the River Lee. But yeah, Holly Cairns is building a 243 square meter house in West Cork, like on her family land. And our fam- um, that they've farmed for decades. That's the yeah. thing. It's, you know, it's, but it's also, it's just, how do you stand over that? Like you said, there's been there's been a very clear bias towards particularly Sinn Fein, but the left in general over the years, but obviously very particularly Sinn Fein. How do you reconcile it? What is that going to do to a journalist who knows that they have been very unfair to a party over the years, and then you're getting close to a, a position where they are going to be in government? You know, may, are you going to have sources? Are you going to have like this? All has to be at play. This is how the mm. media works. Maybe Hugh O'Connell is actually a big Social Democrat fan and because every time the Indo seems to go after a party or a, a politician like this, it seems to give them a bit of a bump. So maybe that's the idea. He's actually a, a an undercover Social Democrat activist that um, that decided he'd make sure that Holly Cairns got elected in the next election. Maybe that's, maybe that's the plan. I don't know. Um, speaking of Mary Lou, I watched her, vi- uh, well, a little bit of the interview that she did on Ireland AM and I... I um, you know, I don't know. I know you're going to probably want to come in on this one as well. But I did notice that Eilish O'Hanlon had a piece in the Sunday Indo yesterday. Mary Lou snubs RTE to make a direct pitch to female voters. I mean, I know she. I, 
I know, yeah. That's so, that the headline? Yeah, that exactly. The, the article is no longer about, or no, no, the article is not about the overall topic that Mary Lou raised. It's about where she raised it. Like, and it's all, you know, Ida Shohanlan has a, a an op opinion Alice piece on it. Like, but well, like, like she has, a, she obviously has a serious issue with fame. We all know she does, but it gets to a level of embarrassing. Like hmm. that's, it's like, I need, I have a story here and I need to find the worst possible angle to turn it on Mary Lou. That was, I, I, people from right across the political spectrum, I saw come out and and kind of commend Mary Lou for talking about that. It's really, it's not, uh, it's not a thing that's talked about nearly enough. It's, you know, she shouldn't have to talk about it either. Mm. Like the problem is in this country that we rely on people to tell their personal experiences too often to kind of raise awareness and to bring any kind of change. But, um, particularly for a politician, because like it or not. Even having women as the head of parties, there is this judgment that women are not capable of that kind of power. They're not strong enough or too emotional. You know, you have all that already. Then you have the leader of the, like the the future Taoiseach, realistically, um, talking about you know reproductive issues and talking about a hysterectomy. I mean, that's a that's a really risky thing for her to do, and I think she should really, really be commended in doing it. Yeah, I I got the sense from Ailish Ireland's um article that she she was she does talk about the hysterectomy it is quoted in the first um column right about you know um i lost my uh where is it the growth the tumors were removed i didn't require any further treatment or therapies um she goes on and talks about the issues that mary lou raised but it's almost like with a reluctance or a there's a little bit of bitterness there that she has to say something positive <laughs> about the leader uh, of Sinn Féin. Um, but it's there. She did try and address it and try and do it in a, 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 you know, still have a little bit of a dig, but at the same time covered some of the interesting bits ar- around what Mary Lou said. But Mary, as you said, everybody rolled in behind. She actually talked about how the Taoiseach had sent her flowers um, and that she had received text messages from both the Taoiseach and the Taunish. And I'd say the Taunish that was at home going, shit, I should have sent flowers because it made him look very mean. <laughs> that he All he sent was a text, but Bradker sent her flowers. So no, but I, I found that coverage just a little bit annoying. It wasn't as bad yeah. as maybe, you know, some other pieces we've seen but I mean Mary Lou needs to be commended for what she did because she didn't have to do it but she did no. it you know I, not I had herself. heard people talking about it was back surgery or you know and nobody yeah. knew why she was off or what you know the, why there was talking about her being delayed going back to the doll and stuff like that so I think the fact that she chose to come out and talk about it is really important because like Joe Duffy did it last year Joe Duffy did a week talking about the menopause and I think that really highlighted just how bad we are here we're talking about this stuff there were women who came on in the 60s and 70s who had been through the menopause who didn't know what was happening to them they didn't know what the menopause was mm. you know it's like that's how backwards this country has been for so long that we don't we're so behind when it comes to reproductive care and you know i just want to touch actually as well on so we, at the weekend obviously we had i don't want to say our name but we, there was a, a an international uh transphobe came and organized a rally called let women speak and only certain women were allowed to speak and they were supported by, like, funnily enough, um, there was an anti, uh, a kind of anti-transphobe um, counter protest organised, which got massive numbers and really kind of drowned out the the rally that was there. But when they got there, some people took pictures, and it was just men. It was men. Some of them really no- notable figures from the far right. Some of them neo Nazis. Um, which is a bit of a thing when this woman travels around the world. Happened in New Zealand. Happened in like really violent men. Uh attacking people that come up to counter protest and our own far right are attaching with them. Graham Linehan was there. Hilarious. They're all fighting among themselves now because 
some of the women that turned up to speak didn't get to speak and yet Graham Lennon did. So it wasn't <laughs> let women speak so much as, you know, it was just a lot of bigots. Like, but Maybe I Graham that, identifies as a woman. No? Maybe that's why he's so, I don't know. I mean, he, <laughs> he, Graham has serious issues that he's been rejected mm. by the community he once felt a part of and he's taken mm. it out on trans people. And I think thankfully we we showed a really strong counter-protest, but our counter-presence on, on the weekend. But I think what's really important is and it also links to the kind of Russell Brand stuff that's come out over the weekend as well. It's that in these kind of, in these, you know, I hate even using the word conspiracy spaces because we know there are cons- conspiracies happen. Collusion happens. We know this stuff happens to a certain extent. There's a reason why working class communities particularly get sucked into this stuff. And we talked about it so many times on this podcast. But the, the community spaces that exploit that, the people, the conspiracy theorists who willingly exploit, um, exploit that sense in people and whip them up into these really they turn into really excluded and ostracized communities because they splits up families families it, it makes people question everything it brings people to a state of paranoia that they will they will believe anything but what mainstream media is saying and i think those two things are very are very similar because what you have now is you have all the turfs and the transphobes and the people who turned up on saturday mixed in with the far right who somehow the far right like the the tariffs and the transphobes, a lot of them are radical feminists. They have been radical feminists for decades. And they are now aligning themselves with people who are anti-abortion rights, anti-LGBT. Like, they they, they hate lesbians. They hate reproduc- mm. reproductive rights. They're aligning with people they never would have stood in the same room as 10, 20 years ago. And it's, but it is like this counterculture almost that these people are starting to align at any any given opportunity because they see themselves as being outside society. It's a whole cancel, you know, culture mm-hmm. thing. I say that one very commas, but um, and I think the Russell Brand thing is very similar as well. You're seeing a lot of those same communities come to his defense. Mm-hmm. People who, if they sat and actually thought about it, would never have done that five, ten years ago. But they feel excluded. They feel not a part of the mainstream conversation. So they're they're aligning themselves with these people who they never would have before. And I think that's... Re- and again, the whole purpose of this podcast is to... And like, we literally have a conversation every week about the mainstream media and how biased it can be and how it cannot tell stories in the way that actually reflects our experience. But somebody like Russell Brand has actually spent the last couple of years cultivating an image based around that to the extreme that he's now using it as a defense mm. to say that he was set up, yeah. you know? And I think that that's really fascinating and interesting, but those kind of counterculture um, groups all coming together in, a, in that kind of conspiracy community is, is really interesting. Yeah. I, I hadn't paid any attention to Russell Brand for a good few years now. So I got a bit of a surprise when I saw people saying he had turned to the far right. And then I, I, I started looking some of the stuff up um, and people were saying, oh, Russell's have to take it a turn to the far right. There must be some allegations coming against him that he's using it to prepare himself. And people were saying this eight, 10, 12 months ago that, 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 that this they were calling it, that he is turning to the far right because he knows the far right will defend him, whereas the left wouldn't defend him. So it's... Um, it's interesting to to watch some of that stuff emerge, but genuinely, I don't know. He was completely off my radar. I don't know about you, but like I didn't. I know had no. I had around. every now and again you'd see a video, and like that, I was a bit surprised. It was like what? Um, because as ridiculous and you know as he was years ago, he did seem to have a left wing perspective, or at least a kind of you know mm. socialist kind of perspective. But um. Yeah, it's very obvious, but he's he's an absolute egomaniac. So mm. I think, you know, he will go wherever the audience is. And I do think that far right audience is so much more intense 
it's so much more easier to manipulate. The people who are getting sucked into the far right are just easier to manipulate. And I think that's really clear. And he, you know, he just has a God complex as well. But I think what's really interesting now is that everybody's talking about like, why did it take this, you know, this long to come out? The investigation has been happening over four years, with massive amount of resources. And I think when we talk about the media, you know, you were talking earlier on about all the independent stories. I do think some of this, not all of it, because different journalists have the capacity to really kind of, you know, not go down that road but the media model is just a part of this i mean the money mm-hmm. that went into that investigation yeah. you know yeah. wouldn't have happened without the money that went into it how many of those investigations aren't happening but also there are stories coming up now published newspaper stories from five years ago seven years ago nine years ago 11 years ago about russell brand about people calling him a predator and yeah. yeah. play sight. and it's mm-hmm. like we just as a culture like as a society we don't want to believe these things like, mm. we just don't. It takes so much. It's got, Someone actually tweeted earlier, which was brilliant, and it was like, you know, the, the footballer, I can't, remember, is it, I can't remember his name now, but the footballer who's now playing, he had to let leave Man United, and he's now Marcus and I don't Greenwood. Know Greenwood. Greenwood. Greenwood, that's it. And, um, it, you know, he's now playing for another team, and it just listed all these men who were supposedly cancelled. Like, Russell Brand just sold out a show the other night, and he walked on to a standing ovation. Mm. You know, I mean, he is his career is not over unless criminal charges are taken. He might find it more difficult to, to book a venue. People might protest it. I don't know. But like the more divisive this stuff becomes, it's it's really lucrative for people to create this audience for themselves and to create an audience that is more like there is there is a financial impetus to whip people up in bad faith. And that that's what's really worrying about this. Yeah, um, it is. And the commentary on Twitter it's very depressing to watch uh, people defending, like uh, defending Russell Brand with this whole, you know, narrative of oh, innocent until proven guilty and all the rest of it. This stuff that constantly pops up, like I, I don't, I see people doing it, and I, I always wonder why, 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 why are you jumping in with that? <laughs> like, I just don't yeah. see the necessity for any individual to jump in and defend someone like Russell Brand. The guy's a multi, multi. Because you're afraid of what that says about you. If you feel the need, if you have such an impulsive response to respond like that, it's because, particularly when it's coming from a lot of men, they're afraid that they're next or they're afraid that their way of behaving is going to be called out or there's something implicitly wrong or there's just a deeply rooted belief that women are are lying or deserve it or part of it or like it is deeply rooted in misogyny, you know, um, because... If you have, like, there's a great visual where it shows the amount of, you know, that we know of, the amount of sexual assaults happen. It's this massive square. And then a tiny percent of them are the amount that report. Even smaller percent mm-hmm. that go to jail. And then there's, like, one person in this visual who actually gets a prosecution yearly. And if you know that they're the figures, sorry, and then there's, like, a half a person down at the bottom and it's like, sorry, two people, there's false accusations that happen. And it's like, if you if you are more scared of, you're more likely, even as a man, you're more likely to be sexually assaulted than to be falsely accused. Mm. But yeah, the, the the false accusation piece is what, what so many, um, and it is particularly men, but it, it's also women. I, I, I'm part of parenting groups online and the amount of women coming forward, you know, defending Russell Brand, and it's all rooted in, you can't believe anything that the media say. Uh, you know, he's been saying this was going to happen and it's like people are just captured. And mm. that is what's really scary because actually it's possible to convince people of anything if you tell them that. Mm. If you set it up in that way, if you set yourself up as a saviour of free speech and somebody that they're out to get, 
well then the minute they come out, they come and get you you know people are like he's, he's been saying this all along mm. you set yourself up as a martyr and then you know Inocu- it's called it. it's called inoculation getting in before like yeah. a almost like a, a <laughs> coincidentally and strangely um almost like a vaccine getting in before you catch the disease and and then protecting yourself to a degree from it um but on, on that conspiracy theory stuff like uh, I'm sure everybody has uh, has seen this one but uh what <laughs> Maya Dunphy has a an article why we're digging stories about aliens and cosmic craters uh, <laughs> And it's a really, I actually sent it on to some of my Australian friends, um, the one, the TV tree coverage (laughs) of this, um, uh, what did he call himself? An astrophysics enthusiast who came across a hole in the beach over in Port Marnock, which just happened to have a stone inside of it and uh, started convincing TV tree that this was a cosmic event uh, that had caused this and start, you know, and uh, I like the way my Dunphy starts off this article. It was the confidence with which the astrophysics enthusiast relayed his discovery to the television news cameras. Like he's talking about how there's burn marks on the on the on the stone <laughs> on one side of it, and oh. that this is probably from entering the atmosphere. This scorch marks, and like I, I can only imagine what the phone call to TV three was like. Oh, uh, by the way, I'm he I'm was here. tagging them on, <laughs> but he was tagging them on Twitter. He tagged NASA. I found the Twitter page, <laughs> and the thing is, I I. I how I came across it, and I'd imagine most people came across it, was a video that did the rounds. It didn't start off with that. It started off with like an Instagram story of the people who built it on the day. And there was their, their video and their own stories of them digging the hole on the Saturday. And then the next video is basically the TV3 story. And I'd say that man will just never, at least Hannah, the reporter, she went on Twitter and she was having a bit of crack about it, you know. Yeah. But like, he is never living that down. If that doesn't make reeling in the years, if that doesn't make reeling in the years, I'll eat me hat. Like it's on the I wrong know. station. Oh yeah, they probably won't pull. Well, it's reeling really, in the years is whatever happens in the years, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I'd say they'd only love to dig out Virgin Media for getting filled, something like that. But what a cracker! I mean, what uh, a cracker! It's just it's after like he was, and like what is an astro like an astrophysics enthusiast? Yeah, he's <laughs> not a professional. Like he has like... some qualification. Yeah. <laughs> You like what? Oh God! It's just you, you know. I sent it on to the, uh, some friends from overseas, uh, and they came back to me and said, "There's no way that's real. No, nobody would believe it." They're all like, "No, he <laughs> he's talking with too much enthusiasm. It's just way he's he's obviously a very good actor." And I was like, "No, this is real. <laughs> These lads." How well thought out of by the lads, though, to dig the hole and then put a stone, a black stone, into the center of it, so that some passerby would pick it up and go oh my god I found a crater like um, <laughs> and then the crack that was had by Waterford Whispered News and all the rest of them the, like yeah. in Waterford these, ho- these there's a road with lots of potholes in it it's like it must have been the victim of a meteorite storm or something like <laughs> oh it's just never going to end that poor fella I bet really? you he's out sick from work for the next couple of months oh, anyway um, yeah. but there's, it, it, coincidentally as well in the same week that, that you have the story I think it was in Peru where they had the aliens and so some bloke coming forward and saying look we found this uh, mummified alien from a thousand years ago um, two or two bodies that they, they, they presented and then two days later it turns out to be cake that they were um, planning on eating. So I didn't um, see the cake part. I how I saw that was somebody posting. It was like a meme. It was like you know scientists were gonna ha- like aliens at this stage would be so advanced that there'll be holograms. There'll be and then it's just like us. And then it shows a picture of this doll. <laughs> it looks like it's like a lit like like 
how convenient that it looked exactly like how we depict aliens in the films. It was I E.T. Mean, it was fucking E.T. I mean, just how rich, like... Steven Spielberg was, clearly had access to this guy, you know, back in the yeah, 80s. Yeah, I mean, that it, stuff you know. alone is just like, aliens are not going to look like E.T. Like, just, can we all... Yeah, it was gas. I, 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 I got to stick to the theme of cosmic events because there's an article in the... I think it's the Sunday Indo. NASA concerned over asteroid. Sarah Napton uh, covered this. Um, on September 24th, 2182, there is a chance that an asteroid named Bennu will hit Earth uh, with the force of 22 atom bombs. But it's passing by at the moment. Like, the Empire State Building-sized space rock swings close to our planet every six years, but we'll have its close shave 159 years from now. So in preparation for this, NASA sent uh, a spacecraft to Bennu seven years ago to pick up some space rocks to figure out, you know, what it was composed of and all the rest of it so that they could pretend that they've never, we've never had a situation where they've had to um, deflect an asteroid from Earth, but they're worried that they might need to do it with this in the future. So it's touching down. So this, This is what I found a little bit funny about this and really human about this story uh, is that the samples from that, you know, it it, it's passing by us on the on September 24th. Right. Uh, So it's passing by next week on the same day that the spacecraft arrives back in Earth with this stuff. And I go like, if that's going to hit us this year, we're fucked because we're only finding out about what's on on the asteroid um, on the day, day that it's passing. Jeez, like, it's a bit like, of a coincidence. Yeah, so, uh, well, I presume they had they could only get the spacecraft off when it was close to Earth so that they oh, could yeah. get it. But I just thought it was very human of us to to pick up the samples and like, just have this image of this guy looking at it going, yeah, this thing hurtling towards us is made up of cobalt. We're fucked. <laughs> So, so um, that's uh, one of the other quirky ones. I don't know if you want to jump in with one, but I, I have another one story that I wanted to jump in on. Um, uh, about- do you know what? I just want to touch on the great news that the planning for our application for the LNG has been declined. Don't need to get into it, but I just think some good news. Um, Fair play to the Green Party. Oh, stop. Mark <laughs> Ruffalo. The one good thing Mark Ruffalo did. <laughs> ah, no. Hulk is good. I like Hulk. Um, Hulk Thomas of the Graham Party. Yeah. Um, so I don't know which one's the more destructive force, but the uh, the thing I'd say I've, that I wanted to raise is actually um, I don't know if I want to stay on the LNG thing or whether you want me to move on, but the 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 big one here because it's a big frustration of mine, and I come back to it every year on this podcast is the um, the USC uh, and tax cuts ahead of the election. Um, Business Post has a poll on the front page, Red Sea poll. Voters demand tax cuts despite budget watchdog concerns. And it's the same old bullshit every year. You know, they do the same polls. They ask the same questions and expect, you know, they know that they're going to get the same results. And it's, you know, 71% of voters now want the USC removed in the lifetime of this government, which means this budget, effectively, this budget, just scrap USC. You know, um, a tax that brings in billions, literally billions every year. When we have a healthcare system in crisis, when we have a housing system in crisis, when our education system is totally underfunded, they ask a question in the business post. I'm going to read out the question. Uh, I would support the abolition of the USC within the lifetime of the current government. And 71% said yes. 11%, surprisingly, actually, I would have thought it would have been lower. Uh, you know, 
you ask a question like that, you generally get everybody saying yes. Like, um, and then 18, so 11% no and 18% said don't know. This stuff is bonkers to be saying this, the, presenting this as if it's, it's a lobbying piece and yeah. it's, uh, Daniel Murray in, is is the journalist covering it, right? He didn't ask the question. It's a Red Sea poll, co- you know, question, and and then presentation of of those results. But this happens every single yeah. year for the last ten years. We've had this same argument: get rid of the USC. The reason everybody unites on the USC, the highest earners uh, in the country, cannot avoid uh, using tax credits or any other yeah. reliefs. They cannot avoid paying USC. It was bringing in about four billion euros a year about eight years ago, seven, eight years ago. And we've started to erode and erode and erode. And then we wonder why we've got a housing crisis or a healthcare crisis and all the rest. No, of it. I don't even I actually that's the one thing I disagree with you on there. I agree with you on everything else. But like we have billions, well, 16 billion, 14 billion this year in a surplus. So that's billion. not the yeah. reason. That's not the reason, you know, uh, that we we don't we have a shitty healthcare and housing system. Political will and the actual policies and how we use our money is. I can guarantee you those questions didn't sit, didn't include the fact that we have that money sitting there. Like, and I also I don't believe that I think if we if people had any trust in this government or the governments we've had for the past decade, two decades. I think if there was trust there that they would spend that money for the benefit of the country, I think a lot of people would would buy into progressive taxation. Mm-hmm. But I just think that they, there's no trust there. People genuinely feel, I'd rather that 50, 100, 200 quid in my pocket every month than hand it to the government who'll piss it away. Now, I obviously still don't agree with it, even with the government as bad as they are. But you know, like it, it's so infuriating. But the only part of that is that like they can't, like, Last year and the year before, or almost every year but this year, we can make the argument that we need that money for better services. Mm-hmm. What's even more frustrating this year is that even with the surplus we have, now, you can't use that surplus even as a reason to reduce the USC either, though, because this is a one-year surplus. We might have it for two, three years. We need that money forever. We need that money to go like forever. And also, it is a form of wealth tax because it's the only it's the only kind of wealth tax we have. It Like you said, People on higher earners, they can't, uh, they can't avoid it. But it's the when you get to a stage where we have billions in, in a surplus and we still have the shitty uh, systems we have, it's like the only. I was going to say the only thing is a change of government. Unfortunately, I don't think even a change of government is going to do it. This system is never going to provide for us. I think we should end every podcast on that a nice positive <laughs> message. This system will never provide for us. But uh, yeah, reducing taxes certainly isn't the answer. Yeah, a, a permanent crisis under capitalism. That's <laughs> well, uh, VJ actually said it last year. VJ Prashad, uh, uh, capitalism, capitalism is a crisis. It's it is a crisis. Yeah, yeah it's a permanent crisis. But and yeah, fascism yeah. is a response to a crisis in capitalism. Capitalism in, de- in decay. Also, just to know, we didn't talk about it earlier on, but it will be going now. Costas Lapovitsis, his his he's he's written a book and his uh, his speech was absolutely incredible as well. And it talked about the changes in the international financial markets and the the you know and how capitalism is responding to that. And I think you know that's really fascinating as well. Yeah, I, I'm looking forward to to listening to that one again. Part of my problem as one of the you know uh, left block groups, uh, you know, organisers running around and preparing different things, is that you don't get to hear everything. So the, I missed a couple of bits and pieces of Costas and stuff. So luckily, just like all of our listeners, even if you weren't there, you'll get to hear it like me um, for the first time. So I'm I'm really looking forward to that. I've seen Costas speaking in Athens uh, seven or eight years ago, and he's top class, really good um, economist and also really good presenter. Um, 
he interestingly opened up talking about Bernadette McAlisky, <laughs> which is really uh, a nice touch to, to hear because he was talking about his father being a member of the Communist Party. I uh, presume he meant KKE uh, over in um, Greece at the time. And that when he was a kid, he'd listened to his father talking about this radical woman in Ireland who was making waves. And uh, it was it was a really nice touch um, because... I, I I hear very a few people told me that Bernard got a little bit emotional around it as well. So, um, okay, well, I if you've nothing else there, we'll wrap up. Um, this has been the week at work. I've uh, I've been David Gibney. I want to thank Claire O'Connor for joining me here. And uh, again, you know, we're part of the left block. If you uh, support any of the podcasts or any of the work that we're doing, and you want to see on School Coshclay happening again next year, um, then please. Join us on Patreon. You'll get first access to tickets and all the rest of it. It is limited in terms of numbers, but you can support us on www.patreon.com forward slash left block, or else you can just go to leftblock.ie, our website, and have a look through some of the articles and, uh, and you can support us there as well. So uh, thanks again, and we we'll talk to you all next week. <laughs>